Good morning, people of the internet. You're listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a podcast where we discuss the movie Gross Point Blank, one minute at a time. I'm Dev. <laughs> and I'm Hugh. And on today's show, we're looking at minute 26, which starts where we left off in the nursing home uh, with Martin visiting his mother and carries on through to the end of that scene. Pretty much joining us on today's show and all this week, we have Aaron of Out Now with Aaron and Abe, also writer at We Live Entertainment. We Live Entertainment or We Live? We Live. We Live Entertainment. Welcome to our podcast, sir. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. No, absolute pleasure. How are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. Excellent. And what's your, uh, ex- how did you come to this film originally? How did I come to this film originally? Um, Gross Point Blank is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, <laughs> how I came to it is uh, almost a mystery to me because it's it's 97, so I'm 11 at that time. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, and... Um, I, so just something about like the the because I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it when I rented it, and something about the very premise of it uh, just immediately intrigued me. It's like Hitman, cool. I'm into Hitman. Uh, high school reunion, interesting. John Cusack, I like him, and just everything about it resonated with me for whatever reason at the time, and it stuck with me in a way. Whereas I was getting more into movies, which I certainly was, like '99, 2000, I was really like solidifying like I love movies. Um, that's one where the 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 blend of it being like a you know cool hitman movie of the 90s post pulp fiction combined with being like just a sharp screenplay that has things going on that are more than just like the hitman aspect of it but like you know cusack's own sensibilities and whatnot it just always kept it alive in my mind so like Mm -hmm. it's one that's stuck with me for so long where i just it it's like as i just as i said it's like it's one of my favorite movies ever and it's hard to like it's hard to like explain why that is for, for like a movie like that. Cause you hold, you put it in such an esteem where it's like, I don't like, I just love it. Like I, like, I, no, I, I, can, I can break down every piece of this thing and tell you why I like this, that, and the other, but in terms of like why of all movies, 1997's gross point blank is like, yeah, this yeah. is one of the top five things of all time. Like that's, it's, it's like, it's just there. It's just, and and there. I think that's, that's kind of partly why I was wanting to do this podcast because I feel exactly the same way. And I think there's quite a few of us that, I mean, I think you and I were born the same year. We, we were at the same point in time when this movie came out and we, we have a very similar experience where we are introduced to this film so early that we don't necessarily have the same kind of critical analysis when we're first watching the movie. We just love the movie. And like you, you know, missed it in cinema, you know, a little bit too young to, to go and actually see it in the cinema, but was a, a regular at the, the video rental store, getting the VHS and, and picked it up and, and loved it. Um, and I think for me, like this entire movies by minute series is just an exercise in me trying to more deeply understand why I love this movie. So I'm 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 psyched that you're on this journey with me. I'm just happy <laughs> to talk about this movie. Like you know, I I've talked about Ghost Point Forest Point like plenty of times at this point. So like now I'm doing like a, a minute by minute break. It's like cool. I'm into that. Let me listen to that podcast. And yes, I want. <laughs> but like my or whatever. I guess we have a mutual friend, Jake Cluett. Um, who immediately recommended me when he saw this. It's a Gross Point Blank podcast because he knows me oh, well wow. enough. Uh, it's like, of course I would want to do this. <laughs> I don't yeah, what, what, I didn't even request a time to do like what 
part of the movie i'm like whatever just get me on the podcast <laughs> like that sounds good to me <laughs> and 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 as a result you've ended up with five of probably the most depressing minutes of the <laughs> <to enjoy. laughs> uh, well yeah i mean there is that thing that we, depression is definitely both a thing and a theme in this film um but uh, well, i just wanted to ask you um, before we carry on yeah. <clears throat> given both of you came to it through vhs um just thinking back to the way things worked in the VHS era, uh, would you say that there was a more, however much you love cinema and the the, the, the experience of being in the theatre, would you agree that when you have access to something like VHS as early as some of us did, that there were, it, it made things fit slightly more personal when you found the film that you love because it's at home? And and you're not sharing the experience with anyone else. It's you and the screen. That's a good question. I, I, I um, the the blunt answer is no. Uh, and I'll say, but I'll say why. I am a huge physical media collector. In the in the the room that I'm not in right now, I have like thousands of movies, and it's yep, the kind same. of thing where what you're describing to me sounds a lot like you know nostalgic joy. Like there's something there where that like comes from because you started this relationship with a piece of media from like having a videotape of it or whatnot, that there's something that just feels a bit more tangible or what have you, that that's, you know, set, oh. that's, that's, that's like different than like streaming something these days. And it's like, you can't like form that same kind of bond. Like I grew up watching like Batman on VHS over and over again, mm-hmm. to the point where like, not only do you know Batman, but I know like the diet Coke commercial that came on the VHS before Batman. Mm-hmm. Even started. It's mm-hmm. like that kind of thing where, Mm-hmm. There's something that I can treasure as far as that's a great memory for me as far as why, like, you know, part part of why I have a certain relationship with Batman. But mm-hmm. in terms of do I like that movie more because I had it start that way? I'm not that person necessarily. Sure. Okay. Uh, there's a lot there's a lot of movies like that in my especially in my generation with 90s kids who similarly, I think, had VHS tapes or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, where and I talk about this on the podcast plenty, but like movies like Hook that have this kind of generational love. I just don't have it <laughs> because yeah. I, for one, I think Hook was terrible, but also I yeah, just like, absolutely. that's never, that's never been how my mind has kind of functioned. Okay. Um, I'm certainly no. not against it. I'm happy for anyone to enjoy things because they want to enjoy them. That's great. Sure. If you, sure. you know, if you have a relationship like that because of a, uh, you know, whatever kind of callbacks you want to make for it completely there with you. I enjoy that. Like that's not specifically me, but I, I completely understand the question you're asking. So it's sure. like, I mean, because it's just one of those things where I can remember the first time. Because I'm old, I, I'm born in '71, and I can remember in, in the '70s. It was if you were very fortunate to be near a shop that would rent you uh-huh. reels, you know, reels of the film to project on someone's camera at home or at school or in the local hall, you had the ability to see a film again. But if not, it was TV or cinema. And in both cases, it was one and done, unless maybe there was a repeat on, or you could persuade your parents to let you go back to the cinema a second time to see the same thing. And um, <clears throat> when, when, when VHS really hit for me in the start of the eighties, you know, huge obsession straight away, because suddenly I realized all these possibilities, what I could get, what I could do. But there was something about looking back on, on, on where I lived with my parents at the time. And there was something about sitting in the lounge close enough so I can reach the control on the, VHS play if the remote's not working and being right up there with the warmth of the TV and the radiation bathing uh-huh. me, you know, and there was something incredibly personal about a film I discovered that way 
much as I adored going to the cinema, much as I loved everything. So it's not not so much about the object; it's about the experience. The, For sure, the way yeah. the way that that film is because there was just nobody with me. It's just me and the film. And and I, f- I find Gross Point Blank weirdly is one of those films for me at least where I did see it in the cinema and yet my be- <laughs> the, the impact was there but it's the VA, it, it's watching it at home that really kind of cemented its place for me and, and I, ca- I can't explain why I really I, I, can't I think the specialness of being sat in front of the TV was gone for for Aaron and myself by like mm-hmm. by the time we we came around because the TV was just ever present it was just there right whether it was vhs or watching on tv it it wasn't a special thing cinema still was a special thing Mm -hmm. and so i think the discovery through cinema was generally special but uh watching something on vhs was a little bit more mundane and and on demand as well right you you Mm -hmm. know we had the video rental store around the corner it -hmm. was fairly affordable especially compared to going to the cinema um Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Aaron was the same, but like I was renting at least one video, if not several, <laughs> every week. Often renting the same thing over and over again to the point where it would have been cheaper just to buy the bloody thing in the first mm, place. Yeah, but... yeah, 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 yeah. And I, like, I, I agree. I think that that's certainly an aspect of it. And like the, because I, like, I own several, you know, VHS tapes, but it's like, I can't think of any of them that are like, any of my favorite, we got to be beyond uh, T2, obviously. Uh, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> like this, uh, but for the most part, like, you know, I have certain movies that I've certainly watched plenty of times that I know on VHS, mm. but I would say, like, those are the ones that, are, like, you know, still rank high in my my all time favorites. Rose Book, like, I never even owned on VHS. I just saw oh, wow. It eventually. Okay. And then I, you know, once it's 97, it's so, like DVDs are coming in like four years from now on a more yeah. regular basis. Yeah. So I had that for sure, obviously. And then the blu-ray yeah. came out which is terrible and they need to release a new one but whatever yeah uh, but i <laughs> but um, i have it so <laughs> and, and i think a lot of that like the the experience you're talking about Hugh, maybe maybe dvd for us because of those extra features and especially as cinephiles mm. right you yeah. get so much more opportunity to relate to the movie to to be invested mm-hmm. in the movie through those features that you couldn't get anywhere else and that yeah. made a huge difference yeah that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I think you're right. <clears throat> I think very much clear generational thing, definitely, without a doubt. Um, even though I was, I was renting as much as you guys were in the '80s, there was it was definitely a different sense of the of how of of, of not just ownership of, of, of the moment, but also um, the sense of discovery as well, because you suddenly had access to things you couldn't get any other way. Yeah. And I mean, I'll never forget early 90s when one of my friends who'd gone to 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 Baltimore for university and he came back for the summer holidays and he was like you gotta see this man you gotta see this and he pulls out a NTSC official VHS release of Reservoir Dogs hmm. and he's like you gotta see this and I'm like okay okay let's do this let's do this we go down into the basement into the view into the the, the TV room that his parents have and we put this in and we just sit there you know and it's just there's just it, it takes you it, it, it's, it's as you say it, it stops being special later on because everyone does that everyone's mm-hmm. got the VHS player everyone's in there you know somebody walks in while you're doing it and you know I'll get out of here I'm trying to watch a movie blah 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 whereas we didn't have we had a bit more sometimes we had a bit more freedom to do that sort of thing I think um, but yeah to take us back to, to, to Gross Point Blank I mean you know this is where the scene that we're in 
you know, we are in an old people's home, so I guess the conversation about age is appropriate. <laughs> I was about to ask: Is this is this oh, podcast sorry. usually is this podcast usually rely on on elaborate ways for for Dev to say that you're old? Is that is that uh, no? He just does it anyway. That, that's the relationship. That, that has relationship. been the relationship the entire time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't yeah, need no, a podcast excuse. No, no, you absolutely have never needed a podcast excuse. Uh, although, to be fair, I think when we when we first met and we interviewed you as a you know, Vox Pop for a member of the public at that film festival. I think at that point you were polite, but <laughs> didn't last long. <laughs> so, um, yes, so correction, not necessarily old people's home. I it's actually kind of hard to tell if it's is it, is it just an old people's home or is it also, you know, mental health? It's kind of hard to tell if it's a, a bit of both, you know. Yeah, I feel. I feel like it's just an assisted living facility. Yeah, yeah, that'd okay. be my take on it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who seem fairly, you know, um, uh, able to take care of themselves, and it's just that they're they're there. And I feel like okay. I'm kind of curious what intervention led to her being placed here, Same. like whether Same. whether it was like neighbor neighborly concern or something like that. Um, because obviously this is usually a place that either somebody chooses to go on their own or, you know, family direct them to. But obviously that wasn't the case here, given Martin's unaware of, of where she is now. Mm. Um, so Yeah, it is odd. And, and we never find out. <laughs> and we, we do never find out, yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah. questionable element of this in a movie that you know, <laughs> otherwise airtight. I uh, <laughs> I do wonder. It's like he seems like a guy who has the abilities to keep track of certain things like this, and the fact that he's so surprised that that not only is his home entirely gone and burned down and turned into a grocery store, you know, a, a convenience store, uh, his mother is gone, you know, somewhere else. He had to find that out. Like that, like unless he was just, which I guess that's the only way to explain it. He was willingly pushing himself away from anything gross porn related to the point where he just didn't have any updates on it. Mm. It does seem like some of the information he could have easily had beforehand. And and Marcella gets the information for him easily enough when he yeah. asks for it. I think it's maybe not gross point as a whole, but very definitely his family. I think that he he really doesn't have. A particularly good relationship with them when he leaves and mm-hmm. and doesn't do anything to try and bridge that gap um i think he kind of tries to absolve himself emotionally by sending that money back home that he mentions in this mm-hmm. scene um and and beyond that he's kind of like well i've done my duty as a son I'm, I'm sending money home to to take care of them and and i think that's where he feels like the responsibility ended until he comes back to town and he feels like he has to check in on his parents and it's it it feels very much like it's a societal norm obligation rather than a you know familial obligation i mean i also imagine that given the job he does it gets there is probably a point in time where marcella's doing all of the taking care of business making sure the money goes and everything and he's just has it gone? Yeah, okay, well, just signing checks. Do you know what I mean? I imagine it gets to that point. Like, a lot of people in that kind of office lifestyle, that, that is being, being satirised within the film, you know. Um, and then the realisation that it's not going where it is is probably reported to him by her. Yeah. You know, um, and then that's what leads us to where we are now. Uh, interestingly enough, that uh, fourth draft script that we got hold of uh, just simply calls it a nursing home, generically. 
Um, they don't even specify what Mary's uh, actually suffering from. They say she suffers from Alzheimer's or something just as debilitating. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the key issue for them is, you know, what how, how that state relates to Martin rather than just, yeah. you know, the character as a whole. And and this minute in particular, I feel, is is a turning point in the film. We, uh, I, I was joking with Aaron before we started this that, that it's this pretty terrible minutes to be in. But this is is the first kind of kick that Martin gets, right? This is, mm-hmm. uh, he's gone to see his mother. You know, he's kind of got a sense that it's maybe not all, you know, sunshine and, ra- and roses. But mm-hmm. um, this is the minute where she has an episode, she has a relapse, mm-hmm. and the entire conversation changes very suddenly. And, mm-hmm. and it suddenly gets quite heavy. You know, she's kind of lost the plot of what we what was being talked about and doesn't remember who he is again and i think any of us who have interacted with people with alzheimer's or with dementia mm-hmm. are very very familiar with this kind of you know mm-hmm. behavior pattern and, and just that kick in the stomach that you get every time it happens every mm-hmm. time it happens no matter how many times it happens because it's it, it's just like you're losing the person all over again yeah um yeah you know, you <clears throat> excuse me. At this point in the movie, like you, having already revealed the house situation with him, like you're you're before that point, you're with Martin. Kind of, he's getting a kick out of the idea of being back home again. Like it's yeah. it's fun. It's a there's a fun because you know he hasn't been there and it's he, you know he lives a, such a unique life where it's like this is alien to me. I'm in my hometown. Mm. What am I doing here? But I'm seeing, you know, there's Mrs. K and I'm seeing all these people. And now yeah, he's driving down the high street, seeing all the changes in the stores and stuff with this kind of wonder in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, his face is lit up and it's neat. But like, yeah, then you get, the, you know, things get, you know, grounded way back to reality all of a sudden for him. Mm. And, you know, a movie where he's already, he's, you know, he's been this cool cat for the past 20 minutes. You're like watching it yeah. now and it's like, okay, now, now there's, you know, it's getting grounded in a pretty heavy way. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, resh- it's reshaping like what, what's his move here? What's his play? Yeah. Is he going, and it, although it doesn't lead to him being like, well, I guess I got to kill that guy. He gets, <laughs> he gets deeper in his procrastination as far as like, let me deal with the whole Debbie situation, which we'll get to. Like, that's, yes. that's like, I, get, yes. I, need to, I need to deal with the actual things that matter here. I can't just, uh, I have to take Marcella's advice <laughs> and actually yeah. do something in this town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also think this, it, it, it's to, to elaborate on, on your point there, Aaron, I feel like the, as you say, we've seen him be cool. We've seen him be in control and we've seen him slowly lose control, but within a professional environment where it's not always the thing that he could have controlled. And, you know, it's, it's that whole thing of that that military view of, you know, the plan doesn't survive contact with the enemy. You know, he's, he has these things that happen and something unexpected will come in, but of course it's his job to then roll with that. Whereas here, this is not just unexpected. This is completely outside of his wheelhouse completely outside of both his uh, skill set, but also his emotional wheelhouse. You know, how do you deal with something like that? And, and I, I think it's interesting. It's also one of the scenes in which physically he's not as jittery as we've seen him early on. Um, you know, he's very, he, yes, he is finding things to do with his hands, but there are points where he is quite still and just taking things in, in a kind of almost wide-eyed sense of, it's not just dis- maybe disbelief i'm not sure um but i find that interesting i think i think 
if there's one thing that's interesting about this film for me in many ways going back to it this time is is seeing the 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 very very finely graded tones of um the way that Cusack performs um you know even though there's all the thing the ticks and sort of styles and moments that we get associate with him over the years especially verbally stuff like this is kind of you know this is him going way above and beyond the, what the needs of this sort of film <laughs> Yeah, the the bit where um, he asks about you know what happened to the money in the house, and she starts she starts describing it to him, and he already knows the story before she even starts you yeah. know without more than a sentence, and he kind of he takes his hand, he just kind of rub, he just rubs both of his eyes with, with two fingers. It's just, like there's just moments yeah. like that of him yeah registering things in a way where it's like it's taking him out of his routine and into a different, a more personal place that he wasn't necessarily expecting. Yeah, and I'm not sure he wanted to go back to either. <laughs> Discomfort is definitely clear <laughs> in what he's doing. He also doesn't uh, want. I I I would wager he doesn't want like to admit to like Doctor Oatman that oh, you were right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, true, true, true. That's absolutely not one something he wants to do. Yeah, fair point. Oh yeah. wow. Um. So yeah. So as we roll through the minute, we move from the conversation with her where she knows who he is. And as you say, starts she tells him some of the backstory again, some of which we suspect he already knows via Martella. Um, and it's very much, um, uh, you know, the the, the mood. Despite the, the the golden light from the window outside, this is this is a slightly darker side of the room. You know, you feel like there's a, you feel a, 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 in, in addition to the emotional side, there's a gathering gloom, if you like, a little bit. Um, and then the movement of her. To the wheelchair, I find quite interesting because it it just emphasizes and reinforces her um, the state she is now in and the fact that he can do nothing. Yeah, you know he is completely devoid of any ability to aid her, um, and that's really quite heartbreaking. Looking back yeah. on it that way, I certainly didn't feel that way when I was younger. I just, I just took it as this is what it is. But yeah, <sighs> I know yeah, better it's... now. It, you know, like the next scene we'll talk about one in another minute. Mm. Um, but uh, it that that left the stronger impact on me when I was younger watching this. Now, when I see this, mm. there's a it's the helplessness that really uh, gets to you. Yeah. Where there's there he has no option here. Like even if he he can't just give money, like that's not going to yeah. do anything at this point. There's nothing else here, and he's lost that time. Um, yeah. Which he's gonna, you know, he's obviously reckoning with, reckoning with that by being here in general and dealing with Debbie and everything. But that's an as another aspect of his life where, because he made choices, that this there's a life that he's not living now, and that mm. that's something he can't get back in any way. Which makes it, <laughs> as I've gotten older, makes it very depressing to think about you know, yeah. what the other what the other version of that would have been if he didn't do certain things. Um, I, I suppose I ought to really keep this thought for another episode, but I'm going to broach it here because I think it's something that as we go through the film, we can actually address properly. But just very, very briefly, it has just struck me that that depression, that reality, that helplessness is one of the reasons we have such a resurgence in hitmen, de- you know, coming back out of domesticity in movies now. It, leaving aside the fact that 8711 are you know, absolutely have found a formula that they can, you know, crash out every couple of years, whether it's a John Wick or a nobody or what have you. But I, but the popularity of those films, 
You know, I, 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 I can. We've said on on, other, on previous episodes with other guests that you know, you, this is not really a film that would. It could be remade, but whether it would work is, is in the way that it does is a, is a whole other question. But I can see that thematically, this idea could work quite well. Now, I imagine there's a lot of people who are that bit older now and and would associate with you know the 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 the, the catharsis that will come later on in the film. You know, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a romanticism to the assassin world that's always all that's that's honestly always been you know since the 60s um with like Lasana melville and melville yeah. and um yeah. you go to like a tokyo drifter oh so good um brandon to kill like there's there's yeah, yeah there, there's a there's a lot there's a way that they depict the lifestyle which is if anything, exactly the opposite of what an actual assassin would be. <laughs> but on the film, yes, that's all that. There's a way to do that. That certainly you can attack a lot of different themes through this kind of person. That is, you know, it's sexy to watch on camera, but it also allows any writer, director, actor, what have you, to dig into other ideas through that. And yeah, we got away from that for a while because I think the post-Tarantino world, after Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, like that. Like, it made it such a ubiquitous thing where like everybody was like, yeah, yeah this is a great idea. This is a great way to like cash in on something that's cool right now, but also we can, you know, do our own thing with it. That went away for a while because Hey, you know, there's other things that became more popular. Um, but yeah, it, you know, things work in cycles and, mm-hmm. you know, John, John Wick among other things happens. And here we are again, like dealing with a more, you know, nobody is another, like, I feel like a very, very much very akin to this kind of thing where like, oh, that, movie's more, that movie's more like mid midlife crisis where this is more, I don't know the you know thirty uh, something yeah, realization. Thirty, yeah, the 20, 30s angst. Yeah, uh, like you know, having a home, you know, having literally a homecoming. But regardless, yeah, like it's it it has been neat to see like hitman comedy kind of stuff or dark comedies with hitman as assassin characters. That's back in the back in the scheme of things again. I, I loved uh, Fincher's The Killer, uh, for example, just recently because I I, I think the Again, it's less about like the hitman aspect of it, and more about like the 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 existential nature of what this man is doing and where he mm. exists in society and whatnot. Like, there's just ways to play with it that I feel like mm. filmmakers love exploring. Absolutely, right. So, yeah. um, do do we want to just quickly talk about the song that starts up at the end of this minute, or should we save Go that for, for tomorrow's minute? What um, is it? Because I, I was trying to find it too. Because I get, I was trying, I was trying to do the work. <laughs> I couldn't find the name of the song. <laughs> I I also could not find this. It sounds like it's the Clash to me, but I'm. I, yeah, not I figure it's like it's just Strummer like doing part of the, the like the, the music for the movie. Like a, it, it uh... could be. Right. I think in that case, should we leave it for the next episode? Because I know I have somewhere couple of articles i picked up in the research looking at strummer so uh let's let's pick let's, that up with let's hold it okay fair enough fair enough well then i will i will say about this minute then i i, I do love the because it comes back later i love the line um you're a handsome devil what's your name that's a great yes little bit of business right there that mark picks up on later on yeah, yeah. just heartbreaking and brilliant and clever all at the same time and, and delivered beautifully Mm-hmm. And well. and I think probably it feels like something he probably heard as a kid growing up as well from her. Yeah, like it's it's so. one of those phrases that she's just always said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a thing in the in the script about when she, you know, earlier in this in, in the previous minutes where she's talking about his dad, and um, she refer she refers to him as someone, you know they broke the mold when they made him. So I can imagine her saying that 
to the dad, you know, saying, yeah. you know, you're a, who's a handsome devil? And as you say, something he hears, and now, of course, it's it's him. And yeah, the, the, the weirdness of all of that. Oh, dear. But yeah, as you say, good bit of business in the writing there. Okie dokie. So, time to wrap up. This was Minute 26 of the Gross Point Blank podcast, Debbie Radio, 79.5 FM, featuring hosts, co-writers, co-producers, Dev Soliger and myself, Hugh David. Today's guest, and our guest all of this week, is Aaron Newer of Out Now with Aaron and Abe. Uh, where can we find you, Aaron? Uh, well, I do write for, write, write for We Live Entertainment for movie reviews. I write for a site called Why So Blue for Criterion and Blu-ray reviews. I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4, and uh, my personal blog, thecodeiszeke.com. Everything I do and, and every work that I have ends up over there. Cool. Fantastic. Fantastic. You can find us on all good podcast players, as well as on YouTube, X, aka Twitter, and Spotify. And for all of those, it is at Debbie Radio, that is D-E-B-I Radio, as well as on our website, debbieradio.com. And again, all of those is D-E-B-I radio if you want to actually come and talk with us then you can always join the facebook listeners group which is also debbie radio 79.5 fm this time with the addition of the words fan club yes that classic of past because these days nobody's got a fan club everyone just follows everyone on social media but you can join us in the old way of doing things debbie radio d-e-b-i radio 79.5 fm fan club on facebook sure was clear that all of this was new concentrating hard like a little girl smoking for the first time it wasn't